Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. This is my second year at Aspen. I had a great time last year and intend to return. I want to talk a little bit about the book. And uh, the, the book can uh, consume hours. I'm really going to try to cover uh, the salient points in 20 minutes and then have an uh, uh, open dialogue about it. Uh, this is an unusual book. Uh, this is about an, an event that captured the attention of not uh, just the country but the world uh, almost a year ago, July 16, 2009. Uh, and it has an unusual uh, cast of characters, uh, not just the uh, well-known in Cambridge uh, police officer, Sergeant James Crowley, who went to the public high school there, the same high school that my kids attended, uh, worked uh, like his father and brother as a police officer in Cambridge. Um, uh, and uh, was on the Cambridge Police uh, Force when this happened. It involves my colleague, uh, Professor Henry Louis Gates, Jr., who many may know from his work at Aspen over many years. Uh, and Skip and I are dear friends. We disagree on almost every issue. Uh, there, there may be one that we agree on, but there, we, we disagree more than we agree, but we're good friends. And there was no disagreement uh, uh, when uh, he was placed in the uh, police cruiser on July 16, 2009, handcuffed uh, and driven away. The last two words he said uh, to his secretary out the uh, window of the police car with the handcuffs on was, call tree. Uh, that's what he calls me, and, uh, and she did call me. Uh, and it also involves uh, someone who I've uh, mentored and, and uh, known for uh, over 25 years, President Barack Obama. Um, uh, I first met him, I actually met Michelle first when she was at Harvard Law School, 1985 to 1988. Met him when he came in 1988, uh, and he graduated in 1991. They didn't know each other at Harvard. They, they were there at different times. But I've uh, supported him from his uh, early days as a student uh, to his days as a state senator uh, to his U.S. Senate race and then for the presidency. Uh, and his uh, uh, intervention <clears throat> in this matter gave it a, a, a national significance and created a firestorm. So I want to try to talk in the 20 minutes uh, I'm going to take in the three segments. So what happened on July uh, 16, 2009? And then second, the impact of the president's intervention uh, on the dialogue. And third, the lessons to be learned and, and how do we go forward in terms of the issue of race uh, and, and the criminal justice system. And class, there's a lot about class in this book, not just race. So what actually happened on July uh, 16, 2009? As many of you probably know now, having seen his PBS series, Professor Gates had just returned the day before from China and had a re remarkable experience visiting uh, the home of Yo-Yo Ma, one of the subjects of this uh, recent uh, uh, PBS uh, uh, commentary, uh, and looked at some 13th century uh, uh, items about the Yo-Yo Ma family history. And as he arrived uh, that day, uh, his driver uh, from his uh, uh, taxi company stopped in front of his house. And as is the case, Professor Gates is disabled. Uh, he's had polio since he's a child. He walks with the cane. Uh, and the driver took two pieces of uh, luggage out of the back of the car, put them up on the porch. Gates tried to open the door. It wouldn't open. Uh, tried to push it in. wouldn't do it. Uh, uh, the driver tried to help push it in. And finally, they proceeded to get the door open. The driver took two pieces of luggage inside, received his tip, drove off uh, to his next assignment. And Professor Gates immediately called Harvard Real Estate. Why? The house he lived in uh, was owned by Harvard Real Estate, and he'd been leasing it for a number of years. And he called and said, my door is jammed. Uh, I had to uh, shove it to get in. I don't want to sleep here tonight with my door uh, not working. Could you send over someone to repair it? And Amanda Moore said, yes. And here's where the story gets interesting. Uh, as he's talking to Amanda Moore, she's asking him about uh, his trip to China and what did he learn, and he's regaling 
her about the experiences in China. And, and then he says on the portable phone in this living room, wow, you've got a repair guy here already. That's great. She says, no, no, it's going to take him 15 minutes. She said, well, someone's at my door. And he walks with the phone to his ear to the door, and he sees a police officer in a uniform and with the badge and a gun. And the officer, from Gates' recollection, is, has a very ominous look. And the officer says this, step outside. And Gates said, what? He said, step outside. He says, I live here. He said, step outside now. He says, no, I will not. That's what he said. And the officer said, you step outside. I'm investigating the burglary at this house, uh, and I need some identification. Professor Gates said, I live here, and I'll, and I'll give you my identification. And where is it? He says, it's on my table. He says, well, give me your identification. Gates turns around and walks to the table right behind him with his cane and picks up his wallet, and it's a, a folding wallet. And if you open up the wallet, you can see uh, through the plastic, both the Harvard ID uh, and uh, uh, Massachusetts driver's license. I don't know why he did this, but the first thing he did was show the officer the Harvard ID, right? See, that's my picture, right? Harvard University, I'm an officer, right? You know, this is my house. Uh, and at the same time, there's a series of radio transactions going on that none of you know about uh, and that we received uh, after this uh, arrest. And so here's what the officer says. He says, I'm at uh, 17 Ware Street. Uh, the SP, which means suspicious person, is, uh, is uncooperative. Now, what does that mean? Gates didn't step outside, right? Uh, and then uh, Gates gave him his Harvard ID, and he says, do you have any other ID? He says, well, here, here's my driver's license. It has my address, my photograph on it, and some valid driver's license. So what people don't know is that the moment the officer came into his house, he had both forms of identification for Gates. There was never any doubt that Gates gave him the identification. Uh, so that's fact number one. Fact number two, the real hero in all of this is someone that most people don't know. It's a young woman. Her name is Lucia Whalen. She worked at the Harvard, uh, Harvard Magazine across the street in their development office. And an elderly woman had come to her and said, it looks like somebody's uh, breaking into that house. Will you call the police? And Lucia Whalen calls the police uh, on her cell phone. Uh, and she's walking towards 17 uh, Whalen Street, uh, and, uh, 17 Ware Street. And the reason what she says is important is because it gives you the facts that were ignored, uh, overlooked throughout the um, uh, uh, impact of what happened. Uh, and, and you get a chance to see the difference between what the police officers say was going on and what uh, the 911 recorder uh, records this uh, eyewitness saying. And it's very important because you get a sense about her in a way that you didn't understand before. And the big point, uh, let me jump to the end. Uh, people may not realize this. This event from the report to the police uh, until Professor Gates' arrest took a total of six minutes. The entire thing was six minutes long, no longer. Uh, and here is uh, uh, what uh, she said. Uh, and it's interesting uh, that this eyewitness who called the police made no presumptions about race or class or crime. It is a remarkable, uh, important piece of work by a citizen that was largely unknown uh, and that's reported in this book. Here's what she says. Uh, the dispatcher says, tell me exactly what happened. Um, I don't know what's happening. I just had an elder woman uh, stand here, and she had noticed two gentlemen trying to get in a house at that number, 17 Well Street, and they kind of had to barge in. And they broke the screen door, and they finally got in. And when I had looked, I went further, closer to the house a little bit, after the gentlemen were already in the house. I noticed two suitcases. Uh, so I'm not sure if these are two individuals who actually work there, I mean live there. So from the very beginning, this eyewitness was not assuming a burglary, and she cautioned every remark with, I'm just telling you what I see. 
Uh, and I'll tell you, I've been a criminal defense lawyer for uh, almost uh, uh, well over 30 years. I have never known a client ever uh, to bring two suitcases uh, full of luggage to a burglary. Now, maybe take them out, but, 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 but I mean, she's telling what she sees, right? She sees them taking two suitcases into the house. Then the dispatcher asks her a very important question, a critical question. Uh, she says, um, uh, are they black, are they Hispanic, or are they white? And here's what she says. Um, well, there are two larger men. One looks kind of Hispanic, but I'm not really sure. And the other one entered, and I didn't see what he looked like at that point. Now, why is that important? It's important because this eyewitness never, ever, ever, ever said what the police officer put in his report. He says, I talked to the eyewitness, Miss Whalen, and she told me she saw two black men with backpacks involved in the burglary. That's in his report. Uh, indisputable. That's that's what he wrote in this report, and that's what he says happened. And it becomes critical as we go through the rest of the facts. Uh, And then uh, the police police officer uh, comes to the uh, 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 house. And here's where it's interesting. The dispatcher also gives the police officer a description. She says, respond to 17 Ware Street for a possible B&E in progress. Two SPs, which means suspicious persons, Barge their way into the house. They have they have suitcases, right? Uh, and then uh, then she says, "On both SPs are still in the house, unknown on race. One may be Hispanic male. So no one ever says two black men. No one ever says backpacks. Uh, and as you can see, uh, James Crowley was near. He came on the scene, and he's a good police officer. Uh, he grew up there in Cambridge. Went to the public high school." Uh, I talked to a coach there, African-American football and wrestling coach, George Greenwich, who knew him. He said, good kid, swear by him, trust him, I would be in his corner. And and people were very uh, positive about uh, Officer Crowley. Uh, And and here's what Crowley said when you begin to see what I call the book, The Presumption of Guilt. Uh, And that's why there's no legal term called The Presumption of Guilt. The legal term is The Presumption of Innocence, right? But I've turned it on its head to show how quickly... People make judgments uh, based on a number of factors that result in circumstances that are unfortunate and sometimes could be very uh, 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 dangerous. Here's what uh, uh, Sergeant Crowley said. He says, I'm up with a gentleman who says he resides here, but uncooperative. Keep the cars rolling. Right? Cars mean police cars, right? I'm up with a gentleman, that's Gates, who says he lives here, Gates, He's uncooperative. He won't come outside. Keep the cars rolling. I won't back up if we're going to perform an arrest. All this, the next thing he says, and Gates says, after he gives him two forms of ID, Gates says in his officer's report, he says, if you don't believe me, call the chief. Call the chief. The chief is Bud Riley. He's the chief of the Harvard University Police. And let me just say this. Anybody who knows Skip Gates, he loves police. He thinks they always do the right thing. His sense is they, they always get the right criminals. Not him, right? They get criminals who are breaking. I want my neighborhood safe. I don't want my car stolen. I want a restaurant. But no problems. He is a pro-police guy. Uh, and he's in the most untenable situation when he's trying to explain who he is in his own house. Uh, and, and the transcriptions give you a sense that we're never there before. And then the next thing Crowley says is that, can you also send the Harvard University police this way? Uh, and then, after Gates gives him both forms of ID, here's what Crowley says. It's on the 911 tape. He gave me the name. He gave me the name. This is Gates of the resident of Henry Louis Gates Jr. on Harvard property. He gave me the name. 
right? As if he's not saying, it's me. I live here. This is my house. Uh, here's my ID. So he gave him everything he's entitled to. And those of you who do know Professor Gage, you know what happens thereafter, right? He's sitting there saying, he says all these things. Do you know who I am? That's Gates. Do you know who you're messing with? That's Gates. This is five foot eight, 58 year old, 150 pound, walking with the cane. Do you know who I am, right? That's a class issue, not a race issue. His sense is that I'm from West Virginia. I've overcome poverty. I've made it uh, with a PhD from Yale University. I've received a MacArthur Genius uh, Fellowship. I've written a, a dozen books. I've, I had a, a number of award-winning programs. I have honorary degrees. I'm a university professor, not just a professor, but the highest title. Do you know who I am? The police here know who I am. And he's making this plaintive plea that what more did I need to do? I've given you my uh, home, my uh, Harvard ID. I've given you my driver's license. I'm in my house. I've told you to call the Harvard University police. Check with them. They'll tell you I belong here. This is my house. Uh, and none of that results in either Sergeant Crowley leaving or making any uh, adjustments. What could Crowley have done? Uh, my, my view. Looking at it from the point of view of Crowley, if Crowley believed once he entered that house that Gates was actually a burglar, having heard a report, arrest him. He has the right to arrest him. They say that breaking in there, this is the address. I see a black man in here, even though no one reports a black man except in Crowley's mind. Arrest him. Sort it out later. Could have done that. Second thing he could have done uh, is that he could have said, well, maybe this is Gates, I'm not sure. But maybe the two burglars are in this house. Search it. He has the right to search it. We can't stop him from searching. Search the house and, and you know, put handcuffs on Gates, uh, wait for backup, but search the house if you think the burglars are in there. For Gates' safety, for your own safety, he had the right to do that. He didn't do that. Wait for the Harvard University police and say, you guys know this guy, this arrogant, elitist uh, guy who's telling me all this stuff, who's bad-mouthing me? Wait for the Harvard University police. I told you the whole thing took six minutes, right? Uh, to wait for the Harvard. They had Gates under control. Gates couldn't go anywhere with Crowley in the house. Uh, he didn't do that. Or he could have said, you know, I'm getting this information. You're giving your ID. I'm sorry. We thought there was a burglary, and I'm here investigating it, uh, and you're free to go in your house. But that's why I'm here. He didn't do that either. Uh, and what I put in this book, which makes it important, is the actual report uh, of Sergeant Crowley. So you're not taking my word, uh, but you're looking at what he said uh, before he arrived and how he described uh, these issues. Uh, and it's amazing uh, how it's reported. Uh, he comes in and he says, um, uh, Waylon, this is Sergeant Crowley, Waylon, uh, who was standing on the sidewalk in front of the residence, held a wireless te telephone in her hand and told me that it was she who called. She went on to tell me that she observed what appeared to be two black males with backpacks on the porch of Ware Street, right? And she never said that. She never said it, and it's in his report. And what makes it so amazing, uh, he's right that Gates is yelling in his house, which I contend, and any First Amendment expert will tell you, that he has a right to say that. This is my house. And then Gates made the critical mistake uh, in judgment, I say, not legal mistake, but the critical mistake in judgment. He says, uh, uh, I'm, I'm frustrated, and I, I want your name and your badge number. I'm going to file a complaint on you. Whoa, that's, that was it, right? The one thing I've done in over th 30 years of teaching is to tell my students uh, very clearly and unequivocally, whenever you have a complaint against the police, the last thing you ever want to do is to say, I'm going to file a complaint. I want your name and your badge number. Never do that. They said, but we have a right. I said, I knew you have a right, but that's not the right thing to do in that circumstance. What you do 
is look at his or her shirt because on one side would be their name, on the other side would be their badge number. Remember it, memorize it, and use it after the fact, not in the height of the circumstance. If you do otherwise, you are courting disaster, and it could be quite ugly. And students uh, remind me all the time that I should do two things. I told them about that, and I also gave them my business card to call me. I won't tell you how many have called me over the 30 years, but to call me if they have a problem. Uh, and it, it, it's a sense of the difference between doing what you have the right to do, which is object, and doing what's right, which is protect your own safety and uh, de-escalate the situation, uh, and that's what should have happened. Uh, and, and here's the interesting part when you read Crowley's entire report. Um, uh, he, he actually admits uh, that uh, Gates said, uh, uh, get the chief. He admits in his report that Gates uh, gave him his Harvard University ID. Uh, uh, and, and, and then he says, Gates began to yell over my spoken words by accusing me of being a racist police officer and, and leveling threats that he wasn't someone to mess with, etc. And so Gates said all those things. Do you know who you're messing with? Uh, are you doing this because I'm a black man and you're a white police officer? He said all of that, he, and he has a right to say all of it. Now, what's interesting is uh, Crowley arrested him on a statute called disorderly conduct. And, and, and uh, law, elementary law 101 for all of you who want to get upset in your house, you can, is that it's a single house. It's not an apartment building, but you have a right to object. Uh, loudly as you need to, as long as you're not, quote, disturbing the public, right? And Gates is in a single-family house. This is not an apartment building where he's disturbing the neighbors or anyone outside. The only people can hear are him and the officer. And why is he repeating this? He kept saying, I want your badge and I want your name. I'm going to file a complaint. Now, think about this. If the officer gave that to Gates the first time, why would Gates keep asking for it six times? Well, here's another interesting twist uh, in the, uh, the talk about this. I think Charlene Hunter Gaunt might have been to uh, Professor Gates' house. The one thing, I've been to the house, one thing about it, this, is, this, line, ne this next line is breathtaking. Here's what he says. I again told Gates that I would speak with him outside. Uh, my reason for wanting to leave the residence was that Gates was yelling very loud and the acoustics of the kitchen and foyer were making it difficult for me to transmit pertinent information. The acoustics. Gates has nice low ceilings. You can hear very clearly in there. But think about that, the acoustics. I want you to step outside, right? Why? Because he can't commit the crime of disorderly conduct in his house. He can only commit it when he's outside. And, and how do we know that? Uh, this, this is what the officer says once they go outside. Uh, it, it's very interesting um, that, that he describes the scene. His police report says uh, that he, when he goes outside, uh, he's surprised that he notices the officer. That people are out there, and Gates is shouting, and police are out there. And it occurred to me that he was violating the statute by publicly uh, creating a nuisance uh, and shouting, and therefore I warned him. He continued shouting. I placed him under arrest. Here's what Gates says. Gates says he followed Crowley out, and he, and he saw the Harvard University police. He said, hey, guys, tell him I live here. I am who I am. And the police officers from Harvard says, yes, Professor Gates, they knew him, but it's not our arrest. Cambridge was here first. They have jurisdiction. And Gates says the next thing he heard from Sergeant Crowley was, thank you for finally honoring my request, which was to come outside. You're under arrest. And placed him under arrest and charged him with disorderly conduct. Now, the interesting part uh, thereafter is that Gates was taken to the police station, and he was furious, furious and scared. He didn't know what was going to happen to Cambridge Police Department. You know, he saw too many bad movies. 
uh, where I'm going to get raped, I'm going to get beaten. He was afraid of all sorts of consequences. None of them happened, but he was fearful when I went to see him at the police station. Uh, and he also was angry about what happened. Uh, and the interesting thing is that uh, the, the result is very clear that uh, once he was at the station, I asked him, I said, uh, uh, Skip, as I call him, please do me one favor. Uh, I think these charges uh, are not going to stand, but I'm going to have to insist that you be quiet and make no statements to anyone for the next few days until I get them dismissed. And none of you, and no one in the world, knew that he was arrested on Thursday, July 16th. No one knew on Friday or on Saturday or on Sunday or on Monday until the charges were dismissed. And there was a public announcement that they were dismissed in the interest of justice and an apology, in, in effect, for Professor Gates. Uh, and so he did keep that honor by being quiet, and we were able to get the car charges dismissed uh, from the government, from the uh, city uh, and the district attorney. Uh, I wish that were the end of it, but uh, uh, Charlene and others know Professor Gates. Uh, and so the day after the dismissal, I get a call from the New York Times. I said, Professor Ogletree, uh, do you want to comment on, on what your client told us? I said, what? I said, Skip, do you talk to New York Times? Said, tree, tree, just on background, just on background. <laughs> okay, so I had to call the New York Times and try to sort that out uh, as, as much as I could, number one. And then I go online and see something called The Root, which is a very popular African-American blog that's part of the Washington Post. And there's an article entitled, An Interview with My Dad, the Jailbird. I said, Skip, what is this? He said, oh, I just talked to my daughter about the case. And I said, I said, Skip, this is a, it's a whole detailed explanation of what happened. Well, but, you know, she probably added, added some things. I just talked to her for a few minutes. Skip, it wasn't a few minutes. A Q&A, Q&A, back and forth. You told her what you thought happened. And so he had let the cat out of the bag, in a sense, uh, without consulting. Uh, at his point, the charges are dismissed. I can say what I want to say. So, but the good news, we thought it was over. Uh, and then July 23rd, and I'll end with this. President Obama is a great man, and I've supported him from day one. And he, uh, health care, you may remember, in July 2009 was on a roll. He actually gave his first uh, live press conference from the White House. Uh, and at 59 minutes, he talked about what it should look like. He had to support. And remember, in July, there were 60 Democrats, including Ted Kennedy. Uh, and so there was no question about getting it passed and avoiding the filibuster. Uh, and then on the last minute of that one-hour interview, the question was, do you have any comments on the arrest of Henry Louis Gates, Jr.? We had two comments. First, Professor Gates is my friend. And second, I don't know all the facts. All right? Then what do you do? Well, uh, my wife said I shouldn't say that. Well, you be quiet, right, if you, don't, that, if you don't know all the facts. But he actually said two profound things that are important. The first he said was the Cambridge police, police acted stupidly. Right, I see you're nodding, but that's not all he said. He said, when you arrest a man in his own house. But the reality is that, as I said in the book, that blackened him, right? Because people responded in a way that for the first time, this president was not the president of the United States, but he was the black president supporting his black friend uh, over a white police officer doing his job. And uh, Glenn Beck, you may remember, said, you know, President Obama doesn't like white people. Right around then, he was reprimanded by Fox. His ratings went up. Uh, because there was this sense of, wow, Beck is uh, uh, channeling our own sense about this president. It was blacking him in another way. He also said, we have a history in the United States of black and brown men being disproportionately affected by police racial profiling. And as a state senator in Illinois, I supported legislation to address racial profiling. And black people were saying, what? Did we just hear Barack Obama say that there's a racial profiling 
problem in America. We've never heard anybody that explicit about it. And here was the blacks coming to the aid of the president, uh, and, but there was a black-white divide. And then we had the infamous beer summit uh, uh, a week later with the smart strategy, let's get this off the table. Uh, and uh, some of you have seen, you all have seen, I'm sure, uh, the classic uh, photograph uh, in the book. Uh, it's uh, what could be more of a kumbaya moment, right? Uh, two white guys, two white uh, black guys sitting around the table having a beer, peanuts and pretzels, right? Uh, it, it couldn't be a greater scene, right? Well, when you get the book, look more closely at that photograph. Uh, here's a little bit of the intuitiveness of President Obama. First is that uh, when the president invited them to the beer summit, Sergeant Crowley said, I'm not going to go. Why? Because why am I going to go to a beer summit with the president and Gates, his friend, and me? That's not fair. And the White House said, you're right, bring your friends. And so Crowley brought his entourage, family and friends, officers, and I came uh, and others with Professor Gates. So there was a sense of balance. Uh, and the president was going outside with Gates and Crowley. He then asked Sarge, uh, Vice President Joe Biden to join them. Right? Joe Biden was intended. He said, come on out, Joe. And Joe came out. And so you get this wonderful photograph of the four of them. But there's a problem with that photograph, right? Those of you who know Vice President Joe Biden, you know he doesn't drink, not even beer, not even non-alcoholic beer, right? So you'll see his mug is the only full mug uh, during this photo op. And then the president's smart in another way. The moment after they take this photo off, he says, okay, Joe, you can go back in and entertain Tree and the others. What? He sends him back so he can have this conversation. Why? What might Biden have said with Gates and Crowley? Can, can you imagine, <laughs> right? Can you imagine the detente moment? Uh, and so it's interesting that the president had the foresight to say, I want him here, but I don't want him saying a thing. And he, just, and he pushes him out of the, the scene to go back into the White House. And then Joe says, oh, did I tell you about my son, Bo? Yeah, you did, Mr. Vice President. Well, what, what, let me tell you about, uh, okay, we'll, we'll be happy to entertain you. So that sort of got the issue back on the agenda. But then the, the, the reason I wrote the book is not, the gate is a window into the broader issue of race and class and crime in America. And I look at all those issues in a broad uh, series of ways. Uh, and I ended with a uh, chapter called 100 Ways of Looking at a Black Man because I started noticing that these issues of racial profiling impacted everyone from Justice Thurgood Marshall, a civil rights lawyer when he was in the South in the 1930s, to John Hope Franklin, uh, who was the uh, received with J, uh, uh, Judge A. Leon Higginbotham, the, the 1998 uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom from President uh, Clinton. And, uh, and he took uh, uh, Judge Higginbotham and their families to the Cosmos Club, where Franklin had been the first African-American president. And they had dinner. And during that dinner, uh, as they were leaving, a woman came up to him with his tuxedo and says, uh, sir, would, uh, please uh, get my coat for me. And, and, he, and, and he sort of looked puzzled. He never said, do you know who I am? That was his thinking. Why is she thinking that I'm, I'm the, the guy who gets the coats? And he says, well, I, I can take care of the minute. She said, well, hurry up because I've got to go. And he sort of looked puzzled. But he, rep he, re he repeated that to get, make the point that even at 90 years old, there still is this risk that you have that people are going to see you in terms of color of your skin and make a presumption without knowing the content of your character. And so this, uh, the book, book concludes with 100 stories like that. And two I've mentioned that I'll end. One is my dear friend Johnny Cochran, uh, who died a few years ago, five years ago. Uh, and in the 1980s, people may forget that Johnny was a district attorney, a prosecutor in Los Angeles. Uh, mm -hmm. He prosecuted with Gil Garcetti, who became the prosecutor of O.J. Simpson. And uh, Lance Ito was in that uh, office, who became the judge in the O.J. Simpson case. And he made two uh, errors, I say. 
looking back. Uh, the first error Johnny made, African-American man in Los Angeles, he bought a Rolls Royce. Okay, that's not too bad, but then the second error, he drove it on the highways of Los Angeles, right? And here's Johnny driving on the highways of Los Angeles, and he's pulled over by LA cops, uh, and they pull a gun on him. And, and Johnny and I said, put the gun down, my kids are in the back seat. You know, uh, and he says, here, here's my badge, district attorney, and here's my driver's license. And what did the police say to him? He says, oh, Mr. Cochran, we apologize. We didn't know it was you, right? What does that mean? The presumption was made. Who was the, this black guy driving a Rolls Royce on the highways of Los Angeles in the 1980s? Uh, and, and he wrote that in his book as a reminder that uh, no matter how much he'd achieved, he was just one misjudgment away from uh, a catastrophe. Uh, and the other one uh, is a little bit more lighthearted because they're not all about police, but a whole series about public impressions. This is a classmate of mine who graduated Harvard Law School a few years early, African-American male. His name is Prince Chambliss, a prominent lawyer in a, a major law firm uh, in Memphis, lived in a very exclusive neighborhood in Memphis. Uh, and one Saturday morning, he's out there in his khakis and his old faded sports shirt, cutting the grass as he does about every three weeks. And an elderly white woman drives by and right up to his uh, driveway and says, hey, you, uh, how much do you charge for cutting the grass? Because uh, she was interested in having him cut her grass. And Prince turned around and borrowed this from Carl Roy and he says, uh, ma'am, I don't charge anything for cutting the grass, but I do get to sleep with the lady of the house. Uh, this woman hit the gas and drove <laughs> off as fast as she could. Now, I put these stories in there. There are a hundred of them because the question is that what was she thinking? What was her assumption? And why did he just chose choose that rather than saying, uh, indignation, do you know who I am? And that is that we have these presumptions about people that are based on a lot of factors that uh, need to be considered. And I hope that this is, and I have a lot of recommendations about going forward, uh, and including what may be an obvious one. <clears throat> do I think this would have been different if there were different people involved, like if the uh, suspect had been a woman or if the police officer had been a woman, I think the idea of less testosterone could have been quite significant in seeing how do you solve the problem that was not seen in here. Uh, and I think that hopefully uh, that this will be a, a timely opportunity for us to talk about race candidly uh, and get some reactions. I'll stop there and answer your questions. Thank you. Yes, Charlene. <laughs> um, but it, it's hard to suggest that a different impostors, if you will, uh, from yours. It's very interesting because um, if you go to my website, www.charleshamiltonhouston.org, uh, I wrote an immediate response to that report when I saw it uh, because uh, I, I think it is fatally wrong in that aspect. And, and here's what I say. I'll, I'll tell you, this is a report, it's, it's called, the, called the Cambridge Review Committee that was a committee that was formed by the Chief of Police of Cambridge, Robert Haas, who I've been working with since the day of this arrest in a very pr uh, productive way, and by the uh, uh, City Manager of Cambridge, Robert Healy, uh, who agreed we need to look forward uh, in terms of going forward. And the report basically has some remarkable and I think very groundbreaking recommendations for the future. Uh, more community policing, more relationships with the community, examination of whether or not crimes like um, uh, disorderly conduct uh, should give police the amount of discretion that they have, 
uh, and a number of other good ideas that I agree with. It starts off, though, by, in a sense, accepting at face value the reports of both of the men about what happened. They both said they were in fear of the other uh, and that they didn't know that uh, Crowley didn't know who Gates was. Gates didn't know what, why Crowley didn't accept his ID, that there was a clash of personalities that was big. And here's what they say about Crowley. They, said, they say very clearly that once Gates had given Crowley both forms of identification in his uh, house, uh, the, that the matter should have ended. That should have been the end of the matter. And then it says uh, uh, that Gates, uh, uh, even though he was upset once he gave his IDs, Gates should not have continued uh, uh, arguing with the police officer, asking for his identification, and talking about a complaint, because he could have controlled that situation and been different. So read them, and they're very different. And my, my point in my statement is that uh, that analysis is disingenuous for three reasons. Number one is that the police do and did have the power and the authority. When a police officer comes in your house, they have the control of whether it goes up or goes down. They control that, and they should have that control. And that's what Crowley should have done. Gates doesn't have that. He can't say, get out of my house. He never did. Uh, all he could do is talk about filing a complaint. The second thing, there's not a whisper of the facts of what should have been known. And that is, there's not a uh, mention of all of Lucia Whalen, the eyewitness who said, I don't know whether they live there or whether they work there the eyewitness who never said African-American, two African-American men with backpacks. It's just the facts are so palpable to say we're just giving each person's re uh, report. It gives the public a misleading sense of what happened as opposed to either don't look at it at all or look at it in the context of what was the evidence that actually appeared on July 16th. And the third issue as well, it becomes very complicated for the citizen in terms of what you have the right to do. And what are you not allowed to do? Cooperate with police? Yes. And I, and, and I say unequivocally that Skip Gates could have handled it differently, right? But I'm not saying that he violated the law or exercised any uh, legal judgment that's wrong. Uh, what he did uh, was think that he had the authority to object in his own house. And that objection led to a number of issues. And my, my sense is that I hope that there are thir third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth versions. But go. All I'm saying is that read the police officer's report, his partner's report, Ms. Galen's 911 call, the dispatcher. Read everything, and come up with your own decision. Don't let the news, uh, with this you know 15-second uh, uh, soundbite, uh, influence your views. And let me take it back a step. Here's the problem: a lot of people don't like Professor Gates. Right? He's established. Uh, people will say he's arrogant, he's aloof, he's very determined, etc. He's very driven. Uh, and this gets to what happened with him in the present. Is he an uppity black man by asking the police, do you know who I am? Do you know who you're messing with? Are you doing this because I'm a black man and you're a white police? All those things, just think about it, what, what, it, what it means. It creates a conflict. In my sense, I'm not asking you to love him. I want you to understand what might have generated him to, to say and do those things. And he and I, like I said, we disagree on almost every issue, but there was never any of my doubt in that moment of vulnerability. He needed legal counsel, and I would provide to him or anyone else, because that's what I do. Uh, and uh, he regrets that this happened, but the question is uh, whether we can prevent it from happening again. Yes, ma'am. Right after he gave his ID, <coughs> showed who he was, that he lived in Atlanta, 
Do you honestly believe that things could have been different? Do you think that Crowley would have not tried to still get him outside in order for him to be arrested? I, that's, I just, I don't believe that. I don't. I don't know. I. I think that I'm not casting any aspersions on Crowley because I. You know, all the reports I have is that uh, he's a, a good police officer, and I've, I've met with him and talked with him, and, and I have that sense as well. And I also let me just make it clear, race was a factor, but those of us who study this know that uh, often race or class or gender or even religious bias can be unconscious. When I mean, I don't mean that you're unaware of it, but it can be below the surface. I don't think Sergeant Crowley went in there saying, I'm going to arrest this man because he's black and, and he's giving an attitude. I'm sure that uh, the race influenced it because he didn't know who he was. In fact, Crowley tells me, I'm talking about in the book, I, I, when we met at the White House, Crowley said that the, the night after this arrest, he went at 11 o'clock uh, and turned on his computer and said, let me see who this is, and did a little Google and said, oh, shucks, <laughs> right? Because I mean, so his, he never could, I mean, it, 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 once he did the Google, it was like, oh, this is the acceptable, right, guy, right? Uh, he's not who I presumed he might have been. He didn't know who he was arresting. He had no idea. But the moment he knew it, it was like, mm, it's different than I had thought. So I, I, don't, I don't make any judgments about whether he um, felt that way before. Uh, and, but it's the subconscious uh, reaction that makes it problematic. And the, the other problem I talk about class in the book is because there are a lot of African-American and Latino men uh, who say to me, that, you know, we won't get the benefit that Gates had. And they're right. We can't say call tree and have you show up, right? Uh, and we can't, if we do this, we don't know what might happen. So that's what the class distinction. Skip did get some benefits uh, from class, not race, some benefits in class because he could get someone to come to the station the same day. He could have been in jail for the whole weekend, but, you know, get someone the same day, get a bondsman to come even that night, get released without, you know, $50, I think was the bond we had to pay. Uh, and then get the charge dismissed. That is very unique. That is not typical. And so that's what makes it more complicated. It, and that's why the book is designed. It, it skips victory is not necessarily a success in solving the problem because people don't like him. People like uh, Sergeant Crowley. Uh, and, and so this issue will go on and on. Yes, sir. It's, it's, you, you, you talk about a very important point, and, and the Cambridge Review Committee report discusses this. Why? There is a protocol, uh, and the protocol is that whoever arrives first has jurisdiction, number one. But number two, Cambridge can always override the jurisdiction of Harvard. Cambridge has a jurisdiction over the city, and Harvard's in the city. So Cambridge has primary jurisdiction. And the Harvard police, uh, they couldn't say anything. They did, in a sense, acknowledge they knew Professor Gates, but Cambridge had it. Or, handcuffs had been placed on him. You can't undo it unless you go up a su supervisor. Who's the supervisor on the scene? Sergeant Crowley. 
Right, he's the ranking officer. If you see the, the photograph, there are other line officers who are around. Uh, and you also, interestingly, see there's a photograph in the book. All the officers in, in uniform are Cambridge officers, not Harvard. Harvard's there, but Harvard's stepping back because Cambridge is taking it as their case. Uh, and you, you're exactly right, common sense, but in this there is a clear line of authority. And in the good news is that a result of this report, the Cambridge police, the Harvard police, the MIT police are now going to meet to talk about how to solve problems like this. I think it's right to give Cambridge deference because if there's a homicide, that's just too big for a city for a university police to handle it, right? It's Cambridge handles those sorts of things. If it's a major drug, you may recall this past year, there was a shooting because of a drug deal at the Harvard University dorm. And, the, and Harvard was there, but the Cambridge police came in because there was a shooting, there was a gun, there was a death, there was drugs. And Harvard said, we'll back up. You guys take this. We'll assist, we'll do what you want us to do. But this is your crime scene, even though it's on our property. That's an example of how it works. Yes. would have handled any different. I, I think that what someone saw uh, was two people, even though they're suitcases, two people uh, forcing their way into a door, right? And so what do you do? You call the police. There's nothing unusual about that. I, it, it, it's so easy for me to say what I think might have happened and what you think might have happened. We just don't know. But my sense is whether it would have been different, you know, let's, it, it would be interesting to, to uh, talk about that and figure out what happens. They did ask one of the police officers, the black police officer, uh, Leon Lashley, who grew up in Cambridge, uh, about this. And he was a friend of Crowley. He said, Sergeant Crowley, what he did was correct in arresting Professor Gates. And the, the good reporter said, well, what, you, what would you have done? Well, I might have handled it differently. Whoa. Whoa. You, have, you don't have to explain a lot more than that, right? What does that mean? Is that uh, Lashley might have known Gates, right? Might have known how to find out something about Gates. Right? And Crowley was a sergeant. He really didn't do a lot of street work. He's a supervisor. He actually worked on Cambridge's diversity program with racial profiling, teaching other officers how to deal with racial uh, circumstances. So you can see the comp complexity of it. So I, I don't know how to make a judgment of the senior citizen. I think she's right to have called in. Let me just do a little caveat here. My uh, neighbor, uh, where we live in Cambridge, has since passed away. Uh, just uh, Jim Gallagher, his father was a police officer. His brother was a police officer. Uh, and we were on vacation 10 years ago uh, on the vineyard, I think, and, uh, and two white guys came to the back of our house, and one forced the back door open uh, and went in, uh, and he saw this, and, and, and then he opened it, and the other uh, white guy came in through a basement door, and then they left with a couple of bags uh, a little while later, and what they'd taken on my wife's jewelry, some small portable things, and then when we got home, we reported, and Jim said, Charlie, I'm so sorry. I, I, I thought those were your repair guys. It never occurred to me that they were burglars. I would have called the police. Uh, uh, two years later, uh, my son and, and the family were gone, uh, and a couple of his buddies from high school, African-American males, came through the back door. They always come through, uh, and they were uh, at the door uh, trying to see if he was in there, et cetera, and he called the police. Right, right? Because his point said, you know, the Ogletrees are gone. These guys are at his back door. I don't know what to do. Now, is this conscious racism? Not at all. Jim is, you know, dearly deceased, one of the most genuine people I know. 
But you, you better believe that there's something going through his head. You know, who's going to break into a house in our exclusive neighborhood, right? And, and he never thought the foreman. And I laugh at both of them because I'm glad he called the police at least on one occasion. I prefer that he called them on both occasions, right? Brother, be safe than sorry. But that, that's the unconscious problem that we need to address. Yes, sir. Just, uh, again, uh, take a commercial break. On August 18th, the night before Charlene Hunter Golf's doing a program uh, on August 19th, we're having a program, uh, my program is called charleshamiltonhouston.org, uh, and if you don't get a chance to come to Martha's Vineyard that day, we uh, uh, web stream all of our programs. It'll be online. It's called Race, Religion, and Reason. Uh, and the reason I chose this topic is to talk about the issue of racial profiling and whether uh, Muslims have become the new African-Americans, right? It's a very contentious issue, a very contentious issue. Uh, there was a, uh, I don't have it, all the data here, there was a poll done uh, in the New York Times after 9-11, it may have been a year after, right? and asking African-Americans, uh, do you support or oppose uh, the uh, police uh, uh, profiling uh, Muslims, uh, and African Americans overwhelmingly supported it, right? And I'm wondering, how did that happen? I can see, well, now it's them and not us, right? Uh, where there is a real fear uh, of, of this group as opposed to uh, our group, and you can see the complexity of it. I think the answer to your question is a lot's changed since September 11, 2001. One of my dearest friends, Michael Berkeley, died in one of the Twin Towers, so I, I have my own uh, anxiety about uh, the fact that we still haven't held accountable people who killed 3,000 innocent Americans, uh, and, and, and the laws changed for good reason. H having said that, I think we have to be very careful about how far we go uh, in uh, giving up liberty in the pursuit of security, because you just described a profile, right? And the question is, uh, you describe it almost as a male. But you can make the same argument, but, but what if it's not, uh, what if it's a female wearing the same gar, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, attire? What if it's not uh, 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 Arab or Muslim, but someone who might be uh, European or from another country? Uh, and how broad that becomes. And then I ask you, let's take a look at the people who have been involved in terrorism. And what is remarkable, they are white and they are black, and they are male, and they are female, and they are American, and they are non-American. And so the reality is most of the people who have been involved, we, we couldn't describe the fit a profile. And the profile you just described could be uh, Indian Sikhs. It could be a whole series of uh, religious uh, organizations that have nothing to do with what we're trying to fight. And yet we have to have the war on terror because what, what I fear for for my grandchildren is that what we see uh, at, on sidewalks uh, in Israel 
uh, and other parts of the Middle East uh, might soon be in New York and Washington, D.C., uh, and at a coffee shop in Chicago. And that's what's amazing, isn't it, that we haven't had it on our territory, in our states, but it doesn't mean we can't have it. So the idea of being vigilant is very important and very critical, and I think that's uh, important in terms of how we do it. And let me tell you my unpopular point of view, and I've got to stop there. Right? My unpopular point of view is that maybe it's not so unpopular. I am completely against the idea of having military tribunals as opposed to uh, civilian trials. We've had hundreds of civilian trials with uh, juries and American judges where people have been convicted and sentenced to life and death, and when they don't have the evidence, they're, they're acquitted. And the military tri tribunals worry me about what it says, not only about us, but what it says about our soldiers or citizens around the world. How we treat people is how we will be treated is part of my, my concern. So, and, and here's what breaks my heart. Remember right after 9-11, it was in Detroit where there's a very large Arab community. This little uh, Arab American kid, every day, six years old going to first grade, had to go and t carry a flag every day. I too am American, right? But he was, in a sense, identifying himself as an Arab kid, people may not know, but to let you know that I'm patriotic. And I hate for a six-year-old to have to fear for his entire life uh, that. And, and let me be clear. I don't think the main problem is with law enforcement or homeland security. It's us, because most of the people who were suspected were kicked off planes not by security, but by pilots or passengers. Right? Uh, so we, we, all, we all have our own fears that we have to address. In my sense, we can't be careless. We, we just saw it happen in New York. We can't be sloppy. We can't, be, we can't ignore the risk of terror because it's just around the corner. Um, I think we need more security, but I think we need to be smarter uh, about it. Uh, my classmate and friend, Laura Otuno, and I've talked about this in terms of Afghanistan. I wish you were there last night to hear Greg Mortensen. Because it is a problem, uh, and, and I think that, uh, as I say in the book, that we have to fight against these uh, risks that uh, are coming closer to our border. But we also have to do, as Greg Morton says, how to tra trade books for bombs. I mean, how can we start talking about being a friend of the world and not being isolated? And that's a much larger topic that's not in this book, but the whole idea is that what can we do as a society to make things uh, a lot better? Thank you all for coming.